my success um, might have been, you know, clucking like a chicken, where somebody else's might have been imitating a chicken who lost their voice box. I don't even know if chickens have voice boxes, but, you know, it's that moment where we can live into the people that we are in a way that, um, in a way that works for us. That's my first guest on the Mic Drop Moment. She helps people break through the doubt, think bigger, and be limitless. She's held roles like being a presidential appointee in Bill Clinton's White House, helping to shape AmeriCorps. She went on to found a mission-driven executive search firm, placing some of the nation's top nonprofit leaders. She sold that company to her employees to help elect Hillary Clinton to the White House. And then she was asked to give a TEDx talk, something she had never thought about doing before. And now she's a public speaker who shares the stages with people like Nobel Peace Prize winner Malala Yousafzai and ABC's Robin Roberts. Laura Gassner Odding is also the best-selling author of Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life. So stay tuned to my interview with Laura Gassner Odding as we talk about how to create a life, a business, and a speaking platform that's truly limitless. So you have a story to tell, and you wonder, how can you own the stage? Give that killer speech and captivate the audience. Well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Mic Drop Moment, where I bring you bold conversations with public speaking powerhouses, expert advice from personal development leaders, and many public speaking and storytelling masterclasses to give you real-life valuable takeaways to craft a speech, a story, a business, and a life that the world can't stop talking about. It's time to find your Mic Drop Moment. Let's get started. You've shared the stage with Robin Roberts, with Malala, with some of the biggest names out there and been invited to foreign countries. You stood at the Boston Opera House on the TEDx Cambridge stage in front of 2,600 people. And at the beginning of this, did you see yourself as a public speaker who'd be hanging out with celebrities and on big stages? Oh, God, no. Um, it was not, not only was it not a goal, it was a major fear of mine. When when I was first asked to do that TEDx talk, my my exact answer was, oh, no fucking way. I No, 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 no. I don't want to do that. And I actually took the call on speakerphone with my then 14-year-old, now 17-year-old in the car. And as soon as I hung up, he looked at me and he's like, ah, hey, mom, don't you always tell me I need to do things that scare me? And don't you always tell me that if it doesn't challenge me, it doesn't change me? And don't you always tell me that life starts on the other side of the fear? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, so what gives, huh? So I was like, I guess I got to do this, right? You got to walk your talk. So I, 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 I call back. I say, yes, six weeks later, I'm standing on the stage. And I was an exceptionally reluctant public speaker. I was an exceptionally reluctant CEO of the firm that I founded that grew. I am always most comfortable stage left. Like, have you met Mike? Let's watch him shine. It's such a more comfortable place for me. But I also came to the understanding at a certain point in my career that there are, for better or for worse, people who look to me to lead thought or shape opinion or um, create networks or whatever it is. And if I don't go out and hold my place in that spotlight, then I'm, I'm being irresponsible to the, to the people I love and the causes I hold dear. And did you know, so when, when you were asked to do TEDx Cambridge initially, did you know what you wanted to say? Was it very clear to you of like, this is my message? Well, I got asked to do it because I wrote a blog post. And uh, the, so the call I got was, yeah, so that's a pretty interesting idea. Would you consider doing that on the TEDx stage? So I knew that this was something that I was super passionate about. I've, I've spent my career really trying to solve big problems and feeling super frustrated that we're not solving big problems. And and it's because we just keep sending teddy bears uh, to you know to, to places where we're having these these major international crises. And and while that's helpful and lovely and wonderful in the moment, it's actually not helpful and lovely and wonderful to to, to solve the big problems long term. And so I just. I found myself at cocktail parties listening to people congratulate themselves for building cathedrals of comfort, these cathedrals to their own their own egos, these cathedrals to the short-term solutions. And I just, I guess I just wrote, as you know I do, a sort of rage-filled screed <laughs> I posted as a as a blog post. And 
it got some attention and people started, uh, it started resonating with people. And, and this idea that when we ask, how can I help? It's, it's sort of useless in the, sh- in the long term. And we think it's good because it's helpful in the short term. And then I wanted people to be asking themselves a better and a harder question, which is what needs to happen in order to make the kind of change I'd like to make change or I, I, I'd like to put into effect. And so I, I knew going into the TEDx that that was the, that was the subject that I was going to talk about, but I had no idea idea how I was going to talk about it and how I needed to to weave it into my personal story and how to perform a talk or any of that. I mean, all I'd ever done up until that point was do some um, workshops here and there at conferences in, in small rooms, like way down the hallway in the basement. So this was really my first real talk. And it was, it was uh, not a comfortable space for me. <laughs> Understatement of the year. <laughs> So it's interesting to me because you wrote about this on your blog and you wrote this specific piece that says, congratulations, you nailed the opening. They are loving you, except that guy in the front and he's got some kind of face on and the woman next to him looks interested. She's eating out of the palm of your hands. Now don't screw up your mic drop line. Do you remember actually feeling that? Uh, you know, there's it's it's so fascinating to me because now three years hence, uh, I am on stage and I'm giving a talk that I've given, you know, a dozen times. And, and as I say one thing and then I walk across the stage, really embracing the silence, loving the silence, hearing everyone in the audience, expecting the next thing to come out of my mouth. And I give it an extra beat because I'm so confident now in the silence. I still have the tape of that voice in the back of my head as I'm scanning the audience going, where's that guy going? And is, is that woman tweeting about me or is she texting her friend that I suck? Like, what? You still have that thing in the back of your, of, of your head that just talks to you the entire time. And part of that voice says to you, they're loving this. They're watching you walk across the stage and they can't w- wait till you say what you say next. And you're going to nail it unless you don't. And if you don't, you're going to screw it all up. And so, you know, I, I don't know how long I have to be on the stage over and over. I don't know how many standing ovations. I don't know how many people coming up to me afterwards crying for me to feel like I've got it. I can, I'm going to, I'm going to drop the mic. I'm going to give them my mic drop moment before I am confident about that. But my guess is I'm never going to be confident about that. And maybe that's part of what makes speaking fun is a little bit of the high wire act of it being a live performance all the time. But I love that I called it a mic drop moment and I forgot about that. And that's so perfect for the show. I was, you know what? I was doing my research. This is, no one listening to the show is lost on this, that this is officially episode one of the mic drop moment. I recorded episode zero just yesterday, actually, which is just an introduction, a little nine-minute intro to what we're up to. But this is officially episode number one. So it's no secret that in this moment, I have no idea what I'm doing either, but I'm just uh, moving forward with it. And so I did a lot of research. And and you and I have been friends for for several years now. We, we met in an interesting way. You were at a conference that I was teaching at, and I was teaching improv. And I think if everyone looking outside, looking in at you would say, oh, here's this woman who, you know, worked in the White House, has done all these great things, is very well connected, has done a TEDx Cambridge. And yet, do you remember how you felt in that class? Well, first, we should preface this by saying the class was compulsory and I was not given a choice whether or not I was going to attend. (laughs) Because if I had... I would have no recollection of how I felt because I would never have gone (laughs) at all. Um, I know exactly how I felt. I was terrified. I was uncomfortable. I was awkward. I felt like there was no possible way I was going to be able to get it right. I am a raging introvert who was the same socially awkward nerd who went to computer sleepaway camp when she was 13 years old. And by the way, was the only girl at that entire camp and still didn't kiss her first boy till she went to college. So, you know, when people look at me from the outside and they see me, I'm, I'm not that person. I'm, I'm the person as all of us are, who's the, you know, the, the, the sum total of all the things that came before the moment you're looking at them. And the sum total of the things that I um, had before that moment were a lot of command and control 
I like I like sitting on the aisle seat of every airplane, not because I think I'm going to survive the fiery ball of death of a crash, but because I even like the illusion of control. So improv, not a comfortable space for me, but I did it. And I will say that that, that session with you changed, like fundamentally changed how I am on stage. If you like what you're hearing, then please hit subscribe so you don't miss a single mic drop moment. What was that? What was the piece that said, oh, here's, was it a shove? Was it a, was it a, what, what happened that changed you in that way? It was the understanding that because I did not know what I was doing and I didn't know who I was talking to and I didn't know what was coming next. And I didn't know that there were 17 different ways you could cluck like a chicken (laughs) and all of the rest of the stuff that frankly, I rolled my eyes at for years before going to to your session. It was because I knew that I I had that sum total of everything that came before, the the history and the knowledge and the network and the, the experiences that I could handle whatever came at me. And that was the, the, the first understanding. The second understanding was that being successful in my response was not a binary option, right? It's not you, you're successful or you fail. It's that you could be successful in a lot of different ways, and that looks different for all of us. And so my success um, might have been, you know, clucking like a chicken, where somebody else's might have been imitating a chicken who lost their voice box. I don't even know if chickens have voice boxes, but, you know, it's that moment where we can live into the people that we are in a way that, um, in a way that works for us. And in, in order to be successful at improv, you don't have to have, quote unquote, the right answer. You have to have the answer that's consonant with who you are and that you can live into that energy. And so for me, I went from being absolutely terrified of doing this TEDx talk, which is sort of a very scripted, you know, 11 and a half stand in the red circle, you know, very uh, academic kind of feel to now I get on stage in front of 5,000 people and I literally will take volunteers from the audience. I'll hand them the mic and I'll say, hey, tell us your problem. We're going to solve it right here. You've got 60 seconds. And I don't know what's going to come out of their mouths ever. And it's my favorite part of my talk. Why is that your favorite part? Because it allows me to be so super engaged with the individual because everybody in that audience has the same problem or the same question or the same concern. It forces me to plumb the depths of everything I know. And often I come up with new material and new bits shaped from things that I have never talked about in the past and or, or remember it even happened. So I find it to be difficult to, to do the speaker exercise of sitting in your um, at, at your desk and just sort of uh, creating your story banks, right? Like all the different stories that you have that you can do to illustrate different points. But when I'm having a conversation with somebody, like a real conversation, I, I, I hate working a room, but give me one person and I will reach into their into their gut and pull it out and 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 dig around in there, you know, within seconds. That's sort of my 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 secret superpower. I when I'm in those moments, I'm so connected and so um, interested in what's happening that I figure out new ways to describe old problems that have been heretofore intractable for people. And do you think that that the people watching and the people experiencing that, because I've watched you do this, do you think that in a way that's an opportunity for them to have this kind of mic drop moment with you that, that maybe they've not been seen or heard in that way? I, I do. I do think it's it's there because I think that I, the first time I did it, somebody came up on stage and they told me their problem and I immediately went to solution because that's kind of how I am. And then I realized, you know, it worked, but I could I sensed the resistance. And then I realized, oh, yeah, I didn't honor her pain. Right? I didn't honor her experience. And so the next time I did it, I, I stopped and I said, you know, I just, I just want to stop for a bit. Before, before we talk about solutions, I just want to say thank you. I want to thank you for having the courage to come up here and to share. And I want to I honor what you shared because, man, that's real and that's exquisite. And I'm sure that it is difficult. And then I, you know, turned to the audience and said, can we just like, I, I know that I'm going to hug you right now, but I know the whole audience can hug you. So can we all give her a round of applause as our way to give her a hug? And it took like a minute to do that. 
But in that moment, a couple things happened. Number one, her whole body language opened up. Number two, the rest of the audience felt safe. And number three, it gave me an opportunity to go, think, 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 think. What's the, what's the answer? So I, 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 I was able to accomplish a lot of different things and also see much more actually concerned about her, which, which I am, but which, as you know, in my sort of hyper uh, drive kind of way can get lost because, you know, I, I, I get described uh, to audiences as a, as a punch in the face wrapped in a warm hug. And sometimes if I come out with the punch in the face before the warm hug, it's kind of hard to come back. I think one of the, one of the things that's so interesting is balancing, you know, you were talking about starting with that TEDx Cambridge piece that was so scripted and, and it has to be, you have to fit in a circle, literally in a circle. And and then taking that on the road and going and doing speeches with that and then realizing that part of the magic is bringing people up live. How do you find being comfortable with that? Because I think there's probably a lot of people listening who would say, oh, I want to relax more into this when I'm in front of other people. And, and maybe it's not even on stage. Maybe it's just like at a networking meeting, they're trying to introduce themselves and they've got this very scripted way of doing it because that's what they think control means. What advice would you give to them? You know, I can't even watch my TEDx now. It's so painful to me because it is so it in fact it's 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 sort of ironic because it's such a controlled talk that I really wasn't in control of it. It just wasn't me. Um I I was just at an event uh, uh, in London just a couple of days ago. I just flew back yesterday and at the end of a dinner I'm in this room of the biggest thinkers in sort of the business and management space. It's this event called Thinkers 50. And you know, you know all those super smart business and management books you have on your shelf? It's like those authors, like they were the ones in the room. And at the end of it, this woman comes up to me and she says, I'm so glad to meet you because I've been, I read your book and I've been following you online and you're such a badass and it's so amazing and I just love it. And she was kind of going on and on like a little, a little bit long. Maybe she'd had a couple of glasses of wine. Um, and and I just, I turned bright red and I got really embarrassed. And I was like, oh, I'm like, oh, that's, that's, oh my gosh, that's it. And she was like, I can't believe you're embarrassed. That's like, it's actually so charming that you're super embarrassed and shy about this. And um, I think, you know, what I took from that is in these moments when we're at these networking events and we think we have to come in and be super impressive, you know, and be super smart and be super put together. Nobody wants that. I mean, think about all the times that people have come up to you and they just give you this like scripted line and it's filled with a whole bunch of jargon and it's just it's just bullshit, right? And you're like, okay, great. So you know how to optimize performance of blah, 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 blah. Nobody cares. Like you don't care. It doesn't allow you to create a good conversation. And so, you know, I go to Clay A. Bear's brilliant, perfect intro. And rather than tell people what I am, I tell them what I do. Right. And not because like, think about it. When somebody says, what do you do? You don't say um, I'm, you know, I'm the like what I do is the vice president of marketing. Right. What you what you what you are is the vice president of marketing. What you do is you help your company connect with consumers who are actually going to be able to benefit from your products or, you know, whatever. That's not all that compelling. But I tell people I don't say I'm a speaker and an author and an executive coach. I say I help people get unstuck. Oh, that's interesting. How do you do that? Well, my power is that I'm able to look at people and reflect the greatness that they maybe have never seen or maybe have never believed back on them in ways that they can finally believe it and do something big with it. Oh, that's interesting. Tell me more. Well, most of the time I do that as a speaker, as an author, I do some executive coaching. And then you can have this real conversation. That's a conversation, right? But when we think we have to be super in control and give the scripted speech, we're, we're not actually like the best case scenario, we're boring the person we're talking to. And worst case scenario, we're not actually telling people what we do. So the conversation isn't going forward. And so for me, the lesson from TEDx all the way through now is, you know, if I am going to present myself to somebody in on stage, in writing, at a cocktail party, in a networking event, I'm going to present myself. Right? I'm going to be me, and I'm going to know that what makes me special, right, by definition, is that I am unique. I am me. And so I, I love when I get to actually see the twinkle in somebody's eye, and I get to hear the story, and I get to see what they're actually excited about. And so rather than figuring out how do I relax into the script that I've created, 
as you tell people all the time, and you would agree, the better thing to do is to figure out who you are, right? Dolly Parton, figure out who you are and do it on purpose. That's what we need to be doing. And it's much easier to relax into yourself when you're being yourself. I love that. You don't you don't know this, but in episode zero, the 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 zero episode of the show, since we're on episode one now, I actually talk about Dolly Parton, which I, actually you probably could have guessed that you and I. Dolly's my life coach. I love Dolly. So you said so. You're talking about finding that moment, dropping all the stuff, being who you are, and it's interesting because I was reading in in Limitless your book, which by the way is a great book. It's Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life. And in the beginning of the book, there's this line that I took out. And you said, if you're anything like me, once you've filled all those checkboxes along someone else's path to someone else's success, you've turned around and wondered why, when everything was so full, it still felt so empty. What what was that moment for you? Oh, boy. Well, I would say that the most, I mean, I've had a lot of those moments, right? I think I think that when we're 15, 16, 17 years old, somebody says, pick a path, pick a trade, pick a college, pick a major, you know, pick something, right? And, and we make that decision, the first decision, do I go to college? Do I not go to college? The second decision, if I'm going to go to college, what I major? And if I don't go to college, what's my first job going to be? We make these decisions and then we look back five years later or 10 years later or 15 years later and we say, why aren't I happy? And part of the reason is because we made those decisions before we had a frontal lobe, right? Like the actual part of our brain that determines good decision making. So when we have the 10, 15, 20, 25 year moment and we say, wow, why am I so unhappy as a lawyer, as an accountant, as a you know flight attendant, right? Like whatever the things are that we do, it's because we're letting this person who didn't have a frontal lobe decide where we are. And so I think I've had a lot of those moments because I think every seven to 10 years or so, you, you, you kind of become a new version of yourself. But I think my most defining moment and one that I talk about on stage a lot is uh, on the on the professional side was this moment where I was sitting uh, in my beautiful corner office looking at my lovely clients and beyond them, the beautiful park and the great view that I'd earned my way up to getting. And I thought, God, this sucks, right? I am, I am, I want to be changing the world, and yet I'm working for a firm that I think is not doing it the right way. And because we're not doing it the right way, that means I'm not part of the solution I thought I was part of. And when you're not part of the solution and you have that moment, you realize, shit, I guess I'm part of the problem. And when you realize you're part of the problem, it's sort of untenable. And so it was that was the moment where I where I left the the big traditional firm with the old traditional guys, and I started my own company because I just had this moment of rage where I realized there's a better way to do this that's smarter and faster and more profitable and has more authenticity and more integrity. And everyone told me I was crazy. Like, why would you? do this? Why would you leave this great career that you've earned your way into and 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 you know and start this risky thing? And but 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 I did. And then I had the same moment 10 years later, 15 years later, when I sold the firm that I founded to the people, the women who helped me build it. People said the same thing. Like, what are you going to do next? You don't know what you're going to do next. Your your company is successful. Why don't you just run it? you know, for the next 10 years. And I thought I would rather stick forks in my eyes. Not that I didn't love the women or the work we were doing. I was just, I was just bored and I wanted to do something else. And so my definition of success constantly changed, you know, every seven to 10 years. And each time it did, I needed to, I needed to reinvent my career to fill the checkboxes that actually made up my own definition of success. In the beginning of the book, you, the first section is about why we get stuck. Do you think that that's part of why we get stuck is we don't necessarily even know how to define our own version of success? I think we get stuck because we think that we've defined it because it's been handed to us by somebody else. And it gets handed to us before we even remember how we got it, right? Like, you know, I've talked, we talked about the fourth grade teacher who tells you, you know, oh, you should do this and you should do that. And you go, oh, okay, that, that seems definitional, even though you didn't have a Ouija board or a crystal ball or really any background in career development for young people. Um, and, and so we have like, we just have like these like little insidious notes that come to us along the way and we pack them all up and we stick them on our scorecard and we put the scorecard in our back pocket. And so I think we, we get stuck because we're, we're working so hard to fulfill that, that checklist that we don't even stop for a minute and say, 
is this even my checklist? Like, is this a checklist that I want? And is this going to make me happy? And then once we do realize that we're on the wrong path, we get a little scared to change it because changing it means admitting that we want something else and maybe admitting to other people around us that we don't want what they want. And that's, that's really scary. I, I, the, the, the next book that I'm working on is called Wonder Hell and it's really, or it's going to be called Wonder Hell. Um, and it's really about this idea that when we get to these moments and we're, we realize that there's more inside of us and we want it and we're willing to work so hard to get it. There are moments where we get exhausted or we get scared or we outgrow the people who liked us when we were smaller. And that's hell, but it's also wonderful. And I think we spend a lot of time when we get stuck focusing on the hell part of it and not enough time focusing on the wonder part of it. So I want to write my next book about people who have been in these moments and who have really thrived from these moments. And what do you think it is? What do you think the the perfect blend in those moments is? Because uh, I think it's easy. A lot of us could look at our lives and say, oh, there's been so many of those, but there's only certain ones where we we kind of take center stage and we say, okay, I'm going to do something different. What would you say if, if someone is listening and they're in one of those places where they say, this might be one of those moments that, that Laura was talking about, what do they do? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it, it's, I love um, when I get questions that are like, ask the guru type questions, like as if I know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> I'm kind of making it up as I go along. But I think at each stage of the way, I mean, I, I want to preface that because I feel like, I feel like you, this, this podcast episode should come with a, with a, with a disclaimer, like she is not a lawyer. Do not take legal advice from this person or, you know, not a medical doctor. Um, but I, I, in each of those moments, I have to sort of stop and ask myself, is this what I want? Right. What, what am I, what, what do I, what do I get on the other side of this that is either interesting to me, interesting to people I love, um, that makes the world a better place? You know, what is the point of this? When I was, when I was uh, running my company, we had a, um, uh, a small private school come to us to do a search for their head of school. And private schools are pretty difficult because they, they mostly have parents on the board and, uh, or, or alumni who haven't been at the school for 25 years and don't really know what it's currently like. And so you get parents who are the parent hat and not the sort of board governor hat. And then you get people who are, are operating out of yesteryear. And my business partner said, that would be amazing. We need to sell that search because there's so many private schools. And I said, yeah, but success in doing this search First of all, we're unlikely to be successful in doing the search. But second of all, success in doing the search just means we get more of them. And I don't know that that's going to be considered success by us at the end of the day. And so I think there's that question every time we're in those moments, we say, well, what would success in this look like? And does that get me more of what I want? Whether that's more money to live the life that I want, whether it's flexibility to live the lifestyle I'm looking for, whether it's um, opportunity for career trajectory, whether it's ability to manifest my values on a daily basis, like what does this work get me? And does it get me more of the things that make me feel whole? more of the things that make me feel consonant. And so so let's talk about consonants because this is a whole, I mean, I, I think if there was a thesis of limitless, it would be uh, consonants is this word that, and, and honestly, when uh, when you shared the book with me early to read, I didn't even know what it meant. So I had to look it up. Where did that come from for you? And and why has that had such resonance, I think, for, for, for yourself? And, and honestly, I think everyone who read the book woke up in a way and said, wait a second, there's something here. Yeah, the, you know, it's it's a funny word. I I've used it for 25 years um, because I heard my uh, my mentor, my who actually the book is dedicated to. Um, I heard him talking to uh, clients who would say things like, "Well, we want somebody who is you know looks like this on paper and this on paper and this on paper." And he's like, "Look, we could go out and we could find you that person." But they're not going to be they're going to be qualified, but they're not going to be consonant with your organization's culture. And I thought, oh interesting, right? I mean, you know, you and I, big culture geeks, you're, 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 every time anybody wants to talk about organizational culture, I'm like, go talk to Mike and Eno. So, you know, it's, it, you have to hire for culture fit. It, it, the per person has to fit in with, with, with what you're trying to do in the energy of your organization. And so, um, the book was originally going to be called Consonance. 
And um, I got very good advice, which was nobody's going to buy a book with a word they don't know on the cover. So then it got moved to purpose, doing work that matters. And that also was, you know, not a genius move in marketing. And eventually Limitless had to, had to ignore everyone. Uh, everyone carve your own path and live your best life was formed. And so that was wonderful. But, but once people hear the word consonance, they say, oh, that was the thing that was missing. I didn't know what it was and I didn't have a word for it. And now I can't unknow it. And so it really comes out of 20 years of doing executive search and interviewing thousands of leaders and being really intrigued by the fact that even though I was talking to all of them because they were super successful, obviously I'm a recruiter, that's who I want to talk to. They were all talking to me because they weren't that happy. And I was fascinated by the idea that even in the nonprofit sector where I was interviewing people, people who should have purpose, right? They weren't happy. They got to the top, they were in the C-suite, they, they on paper were successful, but they weren't happy. And so this idea of why success didn't equal happiness um, was, was just something I couldn't let go of. And so I was writing the book, I kept thinking about the people that I interviewed who were actually both successful and happy. And what I realized was they were the ones where the what they did really matched the who they are, right? What, when what you do matches who you are, you're in consonance. And consonance, of course, means alignment. It means flow. It means, um, it, 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 it means when everything is sort of going in the same direction. We all know the word dissonance. It's just the opposite of dissonance. It's not cacophony. It's not noise. It's not chaos. It's just alignment. And when you're in those moments when, you know, those moments when everything you do well is being called upon to solve a problem at hand and it's a problem you care about and you're being rewarded for it in a way that is personally meaningful to you, whether it's financial or karmic, those are the moments where you feel like you could walk through fire, where you can see through walls. Um, and and uh, that's consonance. And when I talk to people about that moment, they're like, oh, yeah, I had that in this job or I have that on this project, but they don't have it in their whole lives. And so the book is really wrapped around what the elements are of consonant that, that, that make up consonants that give people that ability to not just lean into how do I get to the corner office? How do I get to the you know beautiful park view? But how do I actually get to a life that makes sense for me. It's it's a lot like a mic drop moment, honestly, because there's mic drop moments can happen on stage, but I think they can also happen in our lives. And they happen when you are fully aligned because I think we're good at seeing that in each other, aren't we? We are. I mean, how do you describe a mic drop moment when somebody asks you to, to define it? I, my definition is that it's when you are able to be unapologetically yourself and the world responds. And, and I think that we just don't have enough of that. And when you are unapologetically yourself and the world responds, you can't unknow that feeling, right? Oh, it's, I mean, it's, it's one of those times where I think it's an interesting thing that happens on both sides and, and it could be a stage. It could just be, you know, like in your house with, with your spouse. And now I'm Dr. Seuss apparently. So in your house with your spouse and. <laughs> well, you know, I call my kids thing one and thing two. So that works out perfectly. Perfect. It's a theme, but, it, but it could happen there where. It's this thing where both sides of the table feel incredibly seen. When you have that mic drop moment and you're the one that's that's being unapologetically yourself, you feel seen in a way that you don't normally feel. And what's amazing is the other people experiencing it feel the same way that, oh my gosh, because something happens, this magical thing happens when we see somebody really being them, we have this little bit of freedom, I think, and, and this ability. I think it's probably what happens when you bring people on stage and they have this moment of, of truth and honesty and you're supporting them in that. I think the reason it works for the audience is because we all can feel that as well. So when that person is up there having their moment with you, the audience is also getting one. Absolutely. I mean, that's, and that's consonance right? It's, it is when you are being who you are and it's working, right? It's working in whatever it is that you care about. So I could be who I am um, in, in a place where nobody wants to hear who I am. So I'm in the wrong place, right? I, I could continue to bang my head up against the wall or I could figure out where I do belong and what the audiences are that work for me. So I can't bring people on stage and do live coaching about problems that they're having in their lives if I'm 
in an, if I'm if I'm being brought into a corporate office and they're surrounded by by a whole bunch of their peers, I mean that's not going to work. But I can do it when I'm at a, a, a personal development conference and there's five thousand people and they feel much more anonymous. And so it's really about figuring out where those moments are going to work. But it it works because it gives people that consonance. I think once you feel consonance, you can't you can't unfeel it, right? Once you feel the mic drop moment. You can't unfeel it, and you want to have. I think it's. I think it's immediately uh, addictive, right? Like when I was on stage, at like people ask me, well, like if you don't want to do a TEDx, and then you did one, well, how did you go from there? Why did you go from there into this career where you know the, you you make your living speaking in front of thousands of people? And I say because. I, I I I walked to one side of the of, of of the red dot and I and I said something funny and somebody laughed and then I walked to the other side of the dot and I said something poignant and somebody said oh and then I went back to the middle and I made my point and I heard somebody else say yes and it was like oh I need more of that I want more of that it was a mic drop moment because I really was talking about this thing that I cared about so deeply and. And people saw me, they heard me, they, it resonated with them. I was in consonance. And I think when you're in those states, the more you can, you can work to lean into that state, the more it becomes your muscle memory, right? Like Harvard Business Review calls it the, the, the fundamental state of leadership, when you are at your very best. And I think so much of what we do in life it demands that we put on costumes and 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 play parts you know that other people uh, that that other people expect of us and i don't think i don't think that we're exhausted from being too busy i think we're exhausted from the costume changes that come in between all the busy and so i i the more people can have this mic drop moment they can live into who they are you know it's a mic drop life right not just a mic drop moment the more they can have that the more it becomes who they are and the more it empowers everyone around them to have the same thing and to be bold and courageous to be that person who they really want to be their very best them. And what do you, so you mentioned the costume changes. What do you mean by that? So I think, you know, we, we, we try to be, you know, somebody with our kids. We try to be somebody with our spouse, try to be somebody with our friends. We try to be someone at work with our, with the people who we lead, with the people who, who lead us. And I think we're, we're, I think we spend a lot of time trying to, you know, post the perfect picture on the first day of school with our perfect kids and their perfect outfits and their perfect, you know, hair. And, you know, I, I, I think it's exhausting to try to, to live up to everyone else's expectations all the time. I mean, how many friends do you have that talk about how their parents expected them to be a certain person, right? Or maybe their friends, you know, expect them to be a certain person. And, you know, there's competition among, you know, where do you live and and what do you drive and where do you send your kids to school and what size clothes do you wear? And, and, and it's just, it's just horseshit. (laughs) It's really, at the end of the day, we're so tired from making sure that we fit in, that we forget to figure out who we really are. If you like what you're hearing, then please hit subscribe so you don't miss a single mic drop moment. So these costume changes, in your in your talk, you talk about the scorecard. Is the scorecard the costume change? Well, I think the scorecard are really the Joneses, you know? The... um. Uh, let me say that again. I think that I think the costume changes are really us trying to keep up with the Joneses. So you know we have all of these all of these influences from social media, and um, they, I think that they're 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 insidious and they're devastating to us. You know, all of this pressure to you know find balance and purpose and happiness and passion. And and really, when you look at all of those memes that go around about this, they really all come with kind of singular definitions of what those things look like, right? I mean, happiness usually comes in the form of something that you don't have right now that you are going to have maybe in 10 years, but that something always changes and the 10 years always moves forward, right? So the I'll be happy when, it always ends up with like, I'll be happy when I get married. I'll be happy when I get divorced. I'll be happy when I lose 10 pounds. I'll be happy when I run this race. I'll be happy when I get the promotion. I'll be happy when I graduate. There's always going to be another I'll be happy when. And I think we should be happy now. I think it's really important. Life is short. And I think we should be happy now. And and so that's just one example of this sort of pursuit of trying to, to, to live into everyone else's idea of what's going to make us happy. So, you know, the, the costume change 
could be, you know, I go to school and I have to pretend that I care about math when really I'm interested in history and why can't I spend my my life leaning into the you know my love of words versus my love of numbers but maybe you have a parent who says you have to be an accountant right so you're you're kind of stuck and and so I think trying to trying to keep everybody else happy I mean it it works right you get to keep everyone else happy the problem is you just kind of forget about yourself along the way and I think we get used to that feeling I think we 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 feel a lot of times that our own stuff comes last and and that's okay and maybe this is just cuz I'm I'm you know rounding 49 but you know when I turned 40 I I kind of had this moment and I I call them the FU 40s where you're sort of like well I'm hoping that I'm going to get better still, but the truth is I'm probably pretty fully cooked at this point. And so, you know, if you like me, awesome. If you don't like me, well, there's there's not much I can do about that. And barring being just a complete and total jerk as, of a person, there are things that I stand for as an individual. There are things that I do as an individual. There There, there are decisions that I make and they're going to be really awesome for some people. And then other people are not going to approve of me. And at a certain point, you just have to say, who am I living my life for? And I think the costume changes is us really working so hard to fit into everyone else's expectations of what we can be and should be and, and God forbid, what we can't be, that I think that's exhausting. I, I, and, and you know, one sort of specific example is when I sold my company, um, I, I was wandering down the street in, in Boston where I live and I ran into a friend of mine. And she said, Hey, I, you know, I heard you sold your company. What are you doing now? And I looked at her and I said, I don't know. I'm figuring that out. And she just like waited for me to tell her more. And so I just didn't. I just waited for her to respond. And after about, you know, five, seven full seconds, which, you know, is really long if you count it out, she she just like kind of got really nervous and changed the subject because she she was so uncomfortable in the space of not having a box to put me in of 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 not being able to see my checklist and knowing where I was you know in the competitive race right like she has her own checklist I have my own checklist but we all look at each other and we say we know what 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 they do like we 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 see their checklist we know right it's 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 marry the right person you know if you're going to have children you know have them live in the right house whatever the things are that we have on our list that were sort of laid out for us is they are this is what's in their potential is what we look at it as their checklist and 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 I think she was so nervous about not being able to rate me against my own checklist, like not even be able to look at my own scorecard, that she didn't even know what to do. And so I just refused to put those costumes on any longer. I think people don't necessarily always know what to make of me. Um, and I think I get maybe under um, – I think people uh, – uh, I think that they 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 don't expect – that I bring a lot of what I bring and, and, and I'm okay with that because it allows me to, it gives me a competitive advantage. (laughs) Um, But I think those are the costumes. Those are the costumes of, of the sort of the shortcuts, everybody that everybody puts us in. And how do you think that, you know, I find that so often we're, we're living in this place and we have all these costumes. We've got all this different, these different outfits, these different scorecards we're measuring ourselves against what is the moment? How do you, how do you, and maybe there's not a moment, maybe it's a a cycle. What is the time where you say, this is, this is the right costume. So for you, for example, you, you gave this TEDx Cambridge talk based on a blog post you wrote, you thought, I'm not doing this. Your son said, well, hello, I'm sitting here and you're going to do it. And then you had those couple of moments on stage where you thought, oh, this is resonant. This is hitting them. And I'd like that. And then did you just then say my new costume is public speaker or how do you, if someone's out there listening and they're thinking, ah, it might be time for me to get my actual, who I am, that outfit on, how do they recognize whether that's true or not? And not just another way for them to chase something they heard somebody say they wanted. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I'd rather streak naked through the streets than to put on another costume again. Um, and I say that because had I had I said, well, now I'm going to be a speaker, that's the costume I'm going to wear, I don't know that I would have been successful at it. I think what I did rather than 
rather than dealing with the costume changes, I just said, it's just a lot easier to go free. And so I didn't put them on. And what I did is I just, I just said yes to interesting things. You know, I, 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 so, so at, at this event I was talking about earlier, I, I also had somebody who decided that he was going to mansplain to me, um, how one should build a career and, and be strategic about it, which, which I thought was pretty funny given that I've spent 25 years, um, being paid a lot of money <laughs> by really impressive people to do that for them. Um, if he didn't know that about me and we, it, this was the night before the big event and we're at this dinner and, and, and at, at a certain point we're all we're all sitting there and we have our name cards that are in front of us, but they're facing us. And so at a certain point I just said, well, this is weird. I know my own name. I don't know your name. So I took my place card and I turned it around and he said, well, well, you know, um, I, I, I'd like to meet you. What are, tell me, what are your plans? What, what is your strategy for tomorrow? Are there people that you'd like to meet or some, do you have an agenda you'd like to fill? And I looked at him and I said, I have absolutely no strategy whatsoever. And I didn't even look at the list of attendees. And he said, well, what, what, what do you mean? And I said, well, I, I just, I'm just going to go and if I meet interesting people, that'll be great. And he said, yeah, but what do you, what do you currently struggle with? What are the problems you're trying to solve? And I said, well, I don't really, I mean, my problems are really, uh, I have an order of operations problem. I have a, a, an embarrassment of, of good things that are happening right now. And I just don't know which levers to pull first to be most efficient so that I can do all of it. And that was probably my mistake because he took that as an invitation to tell me how I should solve my problem um, without acknowledging my pain or giving me the hug. <laughs> but, but he said, he's oh, well, well, you know, what I like to do is I like to, to think about my 10-year goals. He said, you know, when NASA decided that they were going to, 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 to go to the moon, and then he basically launches into what I'm sure is a bit, and he tells me all about how they – they, they didn't just build a rocket for one time. They built a rocket that they would use over and over again because they knew that they wanted to have this plan. He goes, and because they put a 10-year plan together, they were able to build the right first rocket. So what is your 10-year plan? And, and we're sitting at a table at this point. There's like eight people at the table. And, and, and they're all watching this. And I lean back and I said, you know, it's really interesting that you say that because I have to tell you that's basically the opposite of the entire way that I've lived my life up until this point. As you can imagine, the people got very invested in this conversation. But you know what I said was, if I had put together a ten-year plan, if NASA put together a ten-year plan um, that got them to the moon, why shouldn't they have put together a ten-year plan to get them to Mars? Right? How do you know? And I think if you set your goals too short, or if you set goals without really understanding what you're going to see at every twist and every turn, you set them too small, right? You know, when you're like at the bottom of a mountain range and you say, I want to get to the top of that mountain, you get to the top. What do you see? You don't see, you know, clear blue sky all around you. I mean, you see some of that, but you see 10 other mountains that are even a little higher. And I just, I think trading in one costume for another may be like saying we only want to get to the moon or I only want to get to the top of this mountain. And I think that if we can release, not just like once you've released the pressure of wearing everybody else's costume, of fulfilling everyone else's checkboxes, of being on everyone else's scorecard, don't, 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 don't have the fault. Don't, don't look for the false security of grabbing onto another one. Cause as soon as you do that, you're limiting yourself again. And what I'd rather see is if, if you're already going to get comfortable being uncomfortable, if you're already going to embrace the edge of your incompetence and feel like I'm going to be in the space that where I'm clucking like a chicken, where it doesn't feel good, where I don't know what's happening next, just live there, like lean into that instead. Because every time you learn a new thing, you learn more about yourself, which might say, actually, what I want to do is this, or what I want to do is that. And, you know, you just don't, I, I didn't, I didn't know that speaking was an option until I gave that talk. And then somebody offered me money to give another talk. And then somebody offered me more money to give another talk. And suddenly I was like, wow, I'm getting paid a lot of money to do these talks. And all the people on stage with me all have books. I should probably write one of those, but I never would have thought I should write a book the first time I did the TEDx. So I, 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 I want us to be comfortable being uncomfortable and being okay that we don't need to hide behind the cloak of a costume that's socially acceptable to everybody else all the time. Mm, so good. So good. You dedicated Limitless to Ari Miller. And in it, you said, who taught me to bring all of myself to everything I do. How did he teach you that? So Arnie is... Um, 
Arnie was one of those old, crusty, like, you know, New York Jews, and I come from a line of old, crusty New York Jews, um, who, you know, was, was, was first in his family to go to college. He was in a labor union when he was 14 years old. His father was a card-carrying member of the Communist Party and, you know, fought in the Abraham Lincoln Brigade in Spain. I mean, he comes from, like, tough, tough, tough stock. And there would be moments where we would walk in to a client meeting and I would not be good. I would just not be good. I would have, you know, not been prepared enough or I would have not known enough or I would have been stupid about making an assumption about a candidate that 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 if hired would actually put the organization in peril. And he would dress me down, sometimes in public in front of the client, which was pretty painful, but usually in private afterwards. And he would say, it's not enough. It's not enough that you didn't, that you got it right. You, you can't get it wrong. Like you, 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 you actually absolutely have to get these things as perfect as you can, because our clients are saving the world. They're curing cancer. They're feeding the hungry. They're stopping sex trafficking. They're fighting for gay rights. They are making, they are changing people's lives. And, and the people that they serve, our clients deserve no less than our very best, but the people and the, and, 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 and the world that they're serving also deserves no less than our very best. And it just made me realize that if you're going to do anything you really need to bring everything you have to it. And if you're not interested in bringing everything you have to it, maybe you should be doing something else. This is my conversation with best-selling author and public speaker, Laura Gassner Otting. If you want more of these conversations, then I'd be really honored if you subscribed to the Mic Drop Moment. It, it really translated to when I ran my company, I would have... I would have staff members come to me and say, you know, Laura, I don't understand why you're frustrated with me, why, why you don't think that this is good enough. Our, our clients thought it was great. And I used to say, just because our clients thought it was great, which means it's 1% better than the firm who was doing it last time, who, by the way, didn't do it well, which is why we're in the room now and they're not in the room, that doesn't make it good enough. We know what quality is. Like we know, and if we're not in there doing that work to the very best that we can do it, then we don't belong there, right? That is beneath us. It's frankly offensive to my sensibilities. And so I was a pretty tough manager, um, but it really comes because I was taught from Arnie that we have to get it right. And so in my, you know, now I go out and I speak and people come up to me afterwards and they'll say things like, I read your, I read, I, I read the first half of your book and I quit my job and I want to be like, read the other half. <laughs> but, you know, but I'll have people say, you know, I, I read your book or I heard you on a podcast and I, and I decided to quit my job and start a company or I decided to leave my husband or I decided that I was, you know, I, 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 I had somebody write to me and, and tell me that she finally decided to, you know, quit drinking. I had somebody else who told me that she, she finally started exercising and she's lost 30 pounds since, you know, since my book came out in April. And just these really incredible things. I had a woman who got a tattoo on her arm of the of, 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 of the art on the cover. And I realized that we're on stage, if we're writing, if we're creating for people these mic drop moments, we have a responsibility to, 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 to you know, we, we can't get it wrong. Like we, we have to, we have to be absolutely 100% certain in what we're delivering because people are listening to us. They're putting us up on that stage as if we are the ones with the answers. So we better have the answers. And that's what I learned from Arnie. That's a wrap on the very first episode of the Mic Drop Moment. My guest today was Laura Gassner Odding. You can find her at lauragassneraudding.com. Her book is called Limitless, which is available everywhere that books are sold. And if you want to find out notes from this episode and links to Laura, go to www.mikeganino.com slash 001. Thanks for listening to the Mic Drop Moment. I hope you hit subscribe and check out future episodes of the show. So it's time to dial up the volume on your voice, use your story, wake up the world, and find your Mic Drop Moment. Let's get started.